Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The 
The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaki is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Gwilda Wiaki's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Science of Magic or endorsed in any manner by Gwilda Wiaki, Relmar McConnell Media Company, its affiliated networks, stations, or employees. Welcome to the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, a program dedicated to uncovering the unified nature of reality and humanity's ever-evolving place as truly galactic beings. For more information on the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, visit us online at www.thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome to the Science of Magic, a place where science and magic come together to transform fact into evolving truth. We're proudly coming to you through the ever-expanding X-Zone Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, and can also be found on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. This hour, we'll be exploring passages. Indigenous shamanic societies were rich with ritual and ceremony designed to steward the people through life's passages. It was the duty of the shaman of the tribe to create and perform these rituals for his or her people. Eventually, the religions of the culture took over this responsibility. From baptism and marriage to funerals, there's been some sort of provision for ceremonial transition in all faiths. Over the ages, many rituals have been lost, while others have become canned or dogmatic, with little flexibility to customize them to the individual. The art of creating ceremony around the time, season, occasion, and person has virtually been lost. There's much involved in being able to effectively create ceremony. Ritual is empowered by life. In order to align with the way life works, ceremony must must follow solid principles while simultaneously embracing the flexibility needed to accommodate the situation and the participants. Many New Age approaches tend to randomly blend traditions without knowledge of or adherence to ancient principles. Conversely, traditional religious approaches often rigidly follow a protocol that may or may not serve the individuals or the particular situation. In times past, ceremony was performed for most all occasions, rather than just birth, marriage, and death. There were ceremonies for sunrise and sunset, planting, cultivating, harvest, and storing, Rituals were performed for marriage, fertility, pregnancy, birth, naming, coming of age, coming into wisdom for the elders, and for dying. There was a ceremonial support for the grieving, for letting go, and to help the dead to cross. Ritual was performed before, during, and after council. The value of this rich tradition lies in creating a sacred circle as a community, combining intent and blessing to support the members through their process. For example, performing ceremony during the meeting of a council helped the participants align, intent, and come together in agreement upon a mutual goal as a unified whole rather than argue a point from personal agenda and desire to control. True ceremony works with earth and star-based alignment. Most incorporate casting a circle grounded in the four directions, blessing the space. Ceremonies include the elements, water, air, earth, and fire, 
in symbolic form or in physical form, such as holy water, sage, stones, and candles. Every ceremony incorporates male-female balance and evoking divinity through prayer. Ceremony always has a beginning where intent is set, a middle during which time the process is engaged, and ends in gratitude. Ceremonial principles were built into physical structures designed for specific ceremonies. The ancient chapels were constructed in alignment with the directions and ley lines of the earth. The Templars were masters of incorporating the power and balance of the earth and stars into their structures. Sacred geometry in the form of architecture and symbols was integrated into the edifice itself. The Native American Nanipi, or Sweat Lodge, is built according to the seven directions— North, South, East, West, Heaven, Earth, and Center. The Inipi ceremony is based upon the directions, the elements, and prayerful connection with spirit. We're living in unprecedented times. Many of our traditions have fallen by the wayside as cultures and religions blend and ceremonies become watered down or fall away, overcome by events. At the same time, we're in desperate need of ceremony and rituals designed around rapidly changing situations to help us find agreement and stability. Our future depends on finding unity, agreement, and alignment as individuals, cultures, and as a world. We need living ceremony anchored in ancient principles that can cross cultures, religions, and beliefs to unify the sport, the people of today. Our guest this hour is Sarah Kerr. She's a death doula. And after a short break, we will introduce Sarah and we will discuss ceremony and helping the dead to cross. You're listening to The Science of Magic. Prior innovative episodes can always be found on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. 
He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. This is Johanna Carroll, host of Dialogue with Divinity on the Exxon Broadcast Network. While walking along Kanapali Beach in Maui this past year, I kept discovering all these shells and coral in the shape of hearts. My Dialogue with Divinity was very simple. Do you want me to do a retreat to heal people's hearts in Maui next year? And of course, the answer was yes. As a master spiritual teacher, I am offering you a neat retreat called Rise, May 8th through the 12th, 2017, and the chance of a lifetime to rest at a five-star resort for five days and experience a spiritual renewal of your heart and soul. Kanapali is one of the top five beaches in the world. This stunning resort has undergone a $40 million renovation. I walked the entire property, checked out the room choices on your behalf, and I must say, it is stunning. Our conference room faces the ocean with sliding glass doors. Maui is known as Mother Maui because it is a soft, gentle, healing energy. In the embrace of Mother Maui, you will feel yourself rising from the limitations of an ordinary life to an extraordinary journey of peace, bliss, and harmony a greater sense of clarity. Our RISE retreat ignites renewal in the sacred elements of air, water, earth, fire, and wind. There's plenty of free time to enjoy all that Maui has to offer. A small deposit is required now to reserve your space as this retreat, it will sell out. For more details, please go to johannacarroll.com and register today. Aloha, and I'll see you in mystical Maui. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness, I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest this hour is Sarah Kerr, a death doula, celebrant, and teacher. Drawing on the wisdom of nature-based spirituality, Sarah designs and facilitates ceremonies that help her clients and their families to integrate the experience of illness, death, and loss. These rituals honor the spiritual significance of what's happening and bring held into the living and the dying. Sarah's doctoral dissertation explored the ways that modern Western people can restore and recreate meaningful rituals for significant transitions of life. She has a master's degree in environmental physiology and um, excuse me, philosophy, and has been a student of spiritual and shamanic healing modalities since 2000. Her website, soulpassages.com. Sarah, thank you for joining us on The Science of Magic. Thanks very much, Gwild. It's great to be here. I, there's a little typo in your uh, presentation there. It's .ca, not .com. 
Um, yeah, that wasn't a typo. That was a mistake on my part. <laughs> Sorry anyway, about that. Small detail. Yeah, so, it's lovely to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So what drew you to ceremonial work in the first place, Sarah? You know, I have all my life been interested in the experience of working with groups and the dynamic that is developed when a group really gets in tune with itself, each of the people in the group, and there's a kind of field created. And I, in, in my 20s, I was a backcountry guide, and so leading extended trips in Alaska and northern Canada, 30 or 40 or 50 days. So we really became a group that was a single body, and we moved together down the river or up the mountain. So that was really fascinating to me. And then in my 30s and early 40s, I did a lot of work in community organizing, again, helping groups come together to create change. So I've really been interested in how that works. And really, ritual is, is a deeper study of that, because in ritual and ceremony, we're, we're bringing everyone in the process into a similar resonance and frequency in order to make a shift. So it was really a natural transition for me. It's amazing the power of group when you're in agreement, isn't it? Yeah, the, the palpable presence of that field of consciousness is really exciting to work with. <laughs> Where did you get your training in ceremony? You know, um, I don't know if, where I got I got it in those places I talked about, about how to create a space where a, a group becomes one. I, I've done a lot of training in quote-unquote shamanic healing and different kinds of energy work. Um, I, I really have sort of put together my understanding of ritual, gleaning from some of those other things, but there isn't really, I mean, I'm now offering some now, but there aren't really, to my mind, many people who are teaching the real mechanics of the structure of ceremonial space and the architecture of ritual energy. So it's it's an exciting field. It's almost been lost. And, um, yeah, I teach classes on it, and they're not that common. But the principles are, they hold true across cultures, don't they? Yes. Well, I think it's because we're working with objective underlying energetic patterns. They're not cultural patterns. They're fundamental universal laws about how energy works and how consciousness works and how intention and attention direct energy to a particular goal and how that shifts things and how to to bring people into resonance with each other using sound or movement or uh, various different practices they it's really exciting to me how they do transcend culture so what would you say is the science behind it it sounds like you started talking to a little bit that would you mind going into it more the science behind it, you know, I don't know that I've ever described it that way. I guess I talk about it as a technology. That's not that different. It's, um, for me, ceremony is about creating a field of energy that opens a portal, or, or in some ways you could say a lot of different portals, and allows energy to flow. Western mind tends to see the world as a lot of individual objects. Um, discrete beings all in the same place. And what ceremony does is says, well, yes, we are those things, but actually there's another thing that we are too, which is parts of a larger whole. And when we open up the connections in ourselves to each other 
and to the living world, to the ancestors, to the future beings, to the spirits of the land, to all the energetic beings we share this world with. It's, um, it allows the energy to flow through us. There's a, a beautiful Buddhist image called Indra's net, and it's a, an ancient way of describing a hologram, that the world is a net of light, all these lines of uh, light, and at each junction uh, in the net is a jewel, and each jewel reflects every other jewel in the net. And I love that image because it gives us a way to, to describe what's happening in ritual. If we imagine ourselves to be the jewels, we we consciously uh, open ourselves to allow the energy that's in the net to flow through us. We give, we receive, we need, we offer, and that's what brings healing back into the system. Mm, beautifully stated. So would you speak about ceremony tends to transcend time and space, but also it seems like it's pretty important that everybody's present with it. Um, how do those three work together? Time, space, and the third is being present. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Uh, the Again, a beautiful Buddhist image of um, what they call the fourth time. And so in Western mind, a lot of this is about shifting outside of the cultural constraints of what Western thinking has allowed us to do and stepping into a different kind of being. So Western mind tends to see time as a line where the past is behind us, the future is ahead of us. We'll never touch those two. And we live at some moment in the present, which is moving its way along the line. And that keeps the past and the future always separate from us. But the Buddhist concept of the fourth time is that, yes, there's past, present, and future, but there's another time that can be accessed by an altered state of consciousness, which is coming into the present. And so the image they have is not linear, but circular, where the present is the dot in the center and the past and the future circle around it so that when we become really deeply present in the moment, we actually open up those gates so that the past and the future are not past and future. They're also here and available. And rituals done now can heal injuries and imbalances from many, many years in the past. And and I wonder whether they may not also be able to prevent them from happening in the future. It, it really is a, an exciting way when you're in it of like the brain's on a different channel and linear time doesn't work anymore. I, when, when I'm teaching a workshop and I wrap up one session and we try and make a, day, a, moment, you know, make a plan to meet again in 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, it is rare that I'm actually able to read the clock. I look at the clock and I have to kind of squint <laughs> and I say, I say, okay, when the big hand gets to the three, that's about as close <laughs> as I can ever get. It's just the time is not in my consciousness. I, I've been there. I understand what you're saying. Um, do you have to believe in a higher power for ceremony to work? You know, when I work with dying people and their families, my clients are usually people who would describe themselves to some degree as spiritual but not terribly religious. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they have a religious tradition that um, really guides them, but it's missing something when they come to me. And it's, they, they have, most of them, for whatever reason, sort of distance themselves a bit from mainstream religions. 
But they know that what's happening when someone's approaching death or has died suddenly is a profound soul event, and it, it asks for a sacred response. And they, they want, in many ways they want to pray, but they don't have a language to pray to when a quote-unquote capital G God, often of a Christian background, doesn't speak to them. So I really invite people to connect with what they feel is sacred. Maybe it's love, maybe it's beauty, nature, community, compassion. There's a saying that there are no atheists in a foxhole. So (laughs) when things get really tough, most people have something that they call on. And so when we're navigating a death and doing a ceremony around a death, we're making prayers for the well-being of this person and for the healing of the community. And we're, we're asking some larger force to sustain and guide because it's, it's too big to do this alone. But that larger force can be different for everybody. And is compassion a higher power? Well, you might see it that way. I don't get too worked up about those definitions. I just invite people to connect beyond themselves. And that seems to be enough. Isn't that the first step of hooking into a larger power is recognizing that you are a larger power and you can reach beyond yourself to connect with others? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And yeah. it, uh, it's really profound. What, what part do you see gratitude playing in ceremony? Well, you know, I'm often working in situations where people have a hard time accessing gratitude for what's happening because it's it's a pretty deep loss in their lives and um so it's not something i necessarily overtly lead with when i come in uh because for someone who's facing a death or who's just had a death asking them what they're grateful for is often not the opening that creates a flow it often shuts things down they're not grateful they're angry they're sad there are lots of things, but grateful isn't first on the list. So I don't lead with that, but what happens when we do the ceremonial work that creates connection? You know, and the Canadian teacher named Stephen Jenkinson has a line that I love. He says, the mark of a good death is that it's a village-making event. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so powerful because there's, so many things we can't control about death. We can't control when we die, how we die, how old we are. Is it quick? Is it expected? Is it painful? Is it messy? We can't control any of those things. And so if we try and define a good death as one where we're lying in bed at the end of our lives with our family gathered around us and we quietly slip away with some poetic statement, if that's what a good death is, then a lot of us are not going to have that. Mm. But if we define the good death as something in which our community comes together. There's more love created in the world. There's more relationship built, more village built. Then even really difficult deaths, if they're handled in a ceremonial way, give people an opportunity to really feel the love they have for each other, Mm. for the living and for the dead and for those who died before. We're really building a village we're going, to have to, we're going to have to pick up with this on the other side of a break. Sarah and I will return to our discussion after this short break. 
We're coming to you through the land of leading-edge paranormal broadcasting, the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Don't miss the other fine shows and hosts on xzbn.net. You're listening to The Science of Magic, thescienceofmagic.net. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. We will be back, so don't you go away. Do you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge, breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. Hi. 
I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, a place where magic and science come together to promote enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest is Sarah Sarah Kerr, death doula, celebrant, and teacher and mentor to emerging death doulas. So would you tell us what a death doula is? <clears throat> sure. You know, it's, a, it's both a, a kind of a new phenomena and a very old one. It's based on the idea, death doula, death midwife, they, they're kind of interchangeable words, um, based on the idea that death and birth are two gateways. We come in one, we go out the other. And they're spiritual journeys as much as anything else, and, um, and very physical ones too. And the same kind of support is needed at both ends. So death doulas and death midwives, the field of death midwifery is growing and and really defining itself. Different people offer different services within there. My services tend to be more focused on ritual and ceremony, but that's not the only definition of a death doula. That's just really the avenue I've taken it down. So do you perform psychopump work or helping the dead to cross within your ceremony, or is it a ceremony for the death itself, and then the person goes on their way? No, it's very much, uh, I say my clients are the living, the dying, and the dead, and that... Uh, a good death, uh, uh, the process of a ritual around uh, a healthy ceremonialized death uh, is of service both to the living and the dead. And to, to the dead as in the person who is or has just died, but also to the larger dead, our ancestors, who, um, who are on the other side. And absolutely the work I do is psychopomp work in much of the sort of classic Western approach to this work, a psychopomp work is something somebody does for somebody else. It's a, like much of Western thought, it's very individual. One person does it for someone else. I actually think that's a, a pretty limited view of how really this works and that a more animistic kind of indigenous perspective is much more holistic. So it's absolutely psychopomp work, but I'm not doing it. It's like I'm the conductor of the orchestra, and the, the community ceremony itself is the ritual which conveys the person across. Mm, that's very Buddhist in nature, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very non-Western. It probably would fit into a lot of different uh, cultural traditions outside of Western linear individualist, materialist culture. So I'm interested in lots of different traditions that that say, well, we're more than our individual selves. How do we operate if we take that as a given? 
let's let's play with this a little bit from a scientific perspective. And you, I'm just puzzling my way through here. So help mm-hmm. me help me if you can. Uh, it seems like when we gather together in ceremonial group, we raise the frequency of the space around us. That creates a sacred space of higher frequency, which helps with transition, because what we're doing when we die is moving from one frequency that's been sustaining the body, leaving the body, and then raising in frequency until we join unity. Does that add up for you? Um, Yeah, you know, that's not uh, necessarily a way I've thought of it, but yeah, certainly, I I can't see any, wouldn't have any argument with that. Um, It's very clear to me that in ceremonial space, we are changing frequency. We're, we're coming into a, you know, I don't t- think about it. It doesn't feel to me as necessarily a higher frequency, but I guess it is. It's a clearer one. So, yes, in that way it is. It, we come into a resonance with each other, and we come into a resonance with the living world, so we're more aligned with the part of ourselves that is indivisible. So that's where your word unity would come in. We're more aligned with that net where we are connected to everything and less aligned with ourselves as a bunch of kind of billiard balls bumping <laughs> around against each other. So, yes, we come in, when we raise our frequency in ceremonial space through all the practices we do, we connect ourselves with the whole, and that allows people to shift. And it's not only the person who's died that's going through a transition, it's everybody in the process. It's really a rite of passage for everyone involved. And so when that ritual space is held correctly, everybody gets to make a shift. What, what training would you suggest a person to get in order to responsibly create and perform ceremony for others? Because we're working on behalf of others when we do that. Um, what would you suggest for people that are interested in taking this up? Well, you know, I, I really feel like I had to feel my way through, over many years, through a lot of different things that pointed me in the right direction and that all together have given me the experience and the skills I need. But there's not a, there's not a step A, B, C, start here, end here, you'll have it figured out kind of training. I mean, I offer some trainings and other people offer bits and pieces. It really is about, I think, for individuals interested in this, coming to be clear about what your personal gift is. Some people do ceremonial work and use music. People use dance. There are different ways to shift spaces, but training, I would say a lot of it is is developing your own personal medicine body and having a lot of experience going in and out of ceremonial space. It's a muscle you develop. And the more often you do it, the more facile it becomes, the more you're able to shift into it consciously. And when I'm working with groups, it's like I just turn the radio dial in my energy field and I put myself in a different configuration. And that is a huge part of what allows the rest of the group to go there because I'm already like a tuning fork. So that would be a big part of it is the personal transformation in your energy body. And then some of the practice and skills around working with fields of consciousness that I think has been really helpful for me. You know, it would appear the person performing the ceremony actually has a great deal of power at their disposal with the agreement of the participants. What's the importance of consciousness and integrity in performing ceremonies? Oh, it's, it's the most important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, 
when I heard of my students were people are learning to do ceremony well. There's a, a way, when I talked about switching that radio dial in my energy body, it's, it's into this frequency of connectedness and out of the frequency of the personal. So I disappear. Uh, what I like or want or think about what's going on, it's as if that just goes in the next room. And when the ceremony is over, I'll come back. That's a normal part of being human. But to be able to lead a ceremony well, that can't be in the space. And it's that connection with the whole, which by definition is about integrity and authenticity and connection with unity and love. It's that that allows the gate to open. So there are certainly ways of doing ceremonies that bring about ill results. Uh, And that's not something I actually have done much exploring of. I'm not really particularly interested in learning how to do that. But certainly (laughs) people can shift fields of consciousness for ill as well as good. Right. That was my next question is, can harm be done through ceremony? Yes. You know, the... um, when we look at Hitler's Germany, they used powerful ceremonial techniques to shift mass consciousness, activating ancient Norse archetypes. They, there was a lot of ceremonial skill in what they did. So yes, it can. That's a pretty extreme example. I think that people doing ceremony with their friends and family or with themselves I don't think we're looking at that much power. And I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of opportunity for... If the ceremony is not true, then it can be damaging. So at a funeral, if as the officiant, if the officiant talks about the person who's died as if they were a saint, when perhaps the person was actually anything but a saint, that is... It's not a healing ceremony. People don't come away feeling like they've had a resolution because it's felt like a lie. Mm-hmm. It's better to say, and all his life he struggled with alcohol, and he really wasn't the father you wished he could have been. And that's part of what you're grieving. To speak that truth creates healing. To pretend that none of those things happened, I don't know whether it causes damage, but it certainly doesn't create healing. You know, um, one time I was at a wedding where the officiate gave a big lecture on divorce. <laughs> and it's like the, the frequency in the room just dropped. You know, would you speak to the power of words as it relates to ceremony? Oh, it's, it's one of my favorite topics. It's, I talk about word magic, that um, words are almost like surgical tools. And they, they shift the space. You know, words have ancient, ancient power. In the beginning was the word. Words are vibration. Words carry such a, a, a huge train of energy behind them. And there's a kind of ceremonial speech. And it, it needs not to be affected or, or artificial sounding. But it comes with that shifting the radio dial. It's a different kind of speech, whereas an officiant, I... I'm not speaking what I think or what I need to hear. I'm 
sealing into the space and sealing what's needed and giving words to what's needed. So taking that underlying field of energy, bringing it up into consciousness in language in a different way, and then using language to take us from one place to another. If, we're in, if there's one energetic pattern and we need to move to a different kind of pattern, words can be part of what floweth there. And the right words, you know, I, I know I've said them when people in the room go, oh, mm. you know, there's a response that just ripples through the crowd when people hear what really needs to be said. So words are profoundly powerful in ceremony. So what I hear you saying, and, and I have experience of doing this as well, is that when you're in ceremony, you're listening to the response of the participants and then echoing back the next words that need to be spoken to go to the next step? Uh, no, I mean, I'm listening below the response of the participants. The participants are often, especially around a death, the participants are so undone. The rug has been pulled out from underneath them. Someone they love has died. They are, um, they often don't even know what they would need or want next. So I feel into this energy in the room and I, I feel it, it's palpable. You know, I feel stickiness or heaviness or friction or sometimes there's colors or, or light or dark. Where is something stuck? Oh, something's stuck because, and then what are the words, or sometimes it's gesture, words and gesture together. They're, that's the other important part of ceremony. What you know, we're, we're going to have to pick up on this one on the other side, so it's a bit of a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. Sarah and I will be back shortly. You're listening to The Science of Magic, thescienceofmagic.net, the place where altruistic professionals of science and the esoteric create common ground for the betterment of our world. We're brought to you by the leader in paranormal, spirituality, and alternative health programming, the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net. As host of Dialogue with Divinity, I am thrilled to join the Exxon Broadcast Network and their growing number of affiliates. My quest for a connection to the divine ignited my successful career path as an international spiritual counselor for over 40 years, an author of four books, and well-known metaphysical educator. My clients call me their spiritual mama. So my job is to offer you a radio show to help you grow spiritually with wisdom and get specific tools from guests who are experts in their field. Tune in to Dialogue with Divinity and be part of the conversation with Spirit. My goal, your happy soul. For more information, please visit my website at johannacarroll.com.
Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest this hour is Sarah Kerr. Death doula, celebrant, and teacher, and mentor to the emerging death doulas. Sarah, how do you help um, others learn to do this work? I live in Calgary, and we're really growing quite a community here, uh, which is really exciting to me that it's happening locally. So um, there's a, a group that gathers monthly, and we're talking about, in general, deathly practices in service, so bringing together people who offer different kinds of support to dying people and their families. And then I teach workshops, and I host a, a monthly gathering called the Community Healers Council, which is, we call it a community of practice for ritual leaders. And it's, it's not teaching in the terms of standing up with a flip chart, delivering teaching. It's 
a little bit of what I talked about earlier in terms of how do we change ourselves? And it's, it's work based on the work of a teacher of mine named Dina Metzger, and she had a beautiful line. She said, how do we become the ones that spirits trust to carry the healing into the future? Mm. So that's, that's what that gathering does. So it's, it's a, a collection of those things, workshops, and, and this year I'm getting organized to do some online teaching and uh, resource development too. So in any way I can, really. Very nice. And how can people find your services? Through my website, which is www.soulpassages.ca. Passages is plural, and it's CA because I'm in Canada. And, and it's all listed there. I list my events, and I have a newsletter. And people can download, when they sign up to the newsletter, there's a holistic death resource kit they can download that has a lot of books and resources and organizations around ceremony and non-ordinary approaches to death and dying and what happens afterwards. What a beautiful provision. Thank you for providing that for people. So are we more vulnerable to suggestion and imposed beliefs when we're in a ceremonial setting? I mean, you were talking about the uh, Hitler's reign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think we're... Uh, yes, it, so those practices around actually creating ceremony to create harm. Yes, I think there's, that's, that's a very small part and one that not, doesn't enter my thoughts very often. But what we are is more vulnerable. So when people come into ceremony, they, they open themselves. They open their hearts. They open their awareness. They open their connection. And it's kind of a two-part process because people really only open when they feel safe, when they trust. And so the way to create that opening is to build a container of safety. So vulnerability and safety go hand in hand. People, if they don't feel safe, they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable. I suppose, and this is not really something that's, I think, very common or very relevant, but I suppose you could, by creating a whole lot of safety and a whole lot of trust, create an opportunity where people are really open and vulnerable and then throw in something that is unsafe and yes, it would cause damage, but it's, it's not, I don't think necessarily the the way most often it happens. Mostly whoever is involved in creating the ceremony does it by creating safety and trust and Mm -hmm. that continues. Right. So some ceremonies like marriage can create a conscious binding. Can you speak to this, and how would you break the binding should the marriage or the uh, no longer serve? Same way you make it ceremonially. <laughs> there uh, you go. It's uh, you know, which is a kind of a sassy answer, but it's you know, the ceremonies establish energetic lines of connection and configuration. So in a marriage, there are a lot of things that happen. The, the two people come together the two families come together. So you create not only a husband and a wife or a wife and a wife or a husband and a husband, whatever that looks like, but you also create mother-in-laws and father-in-laws and sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws and, and all, a whole set of configurations of new identities. And it's done with the statement, I do, which we talked about word magic. That, in a ritual situation, that, those words change something. You are forevermore married, even if you get unmarried half an hour later. 
you have been married. And so to really cleanly come apart, you need um, a ceremony with a similar gravitas. It may not need to be as large as a wedding is, but it needs to have enough intention that I do, I did, but now I don't. (laughs) And that some ritual action that says it was and now it is something different and I leave that. And I think that's the reason many people struggle with lots of transitions is because they're ceremonial entered, entered, ceremonially entered into them but not supported to leave them. It's so true. I think that I, I, I personally think it has a lot to do with why people struggle so with divorce and remarriage. You know, when they marry somebody else, it's, they're still bound to somebody from the first marriage, and it, it, they just struggle a lot for the lack of a simple ceremony to unbind what we consciously bound together. I think it's so important. So why do you think it's important for modern Western people to restore and recreate rituals for transitions? Well, a little bit of what you just spoke to is that if we don't make transitions well, we end up dragging a big bag of rocks behind us into the next phase of our life. And it's not only marriage, but anything, any transition, transitions are both uh, a birth and a death. They're the birth of something new and the death of what was. So even people who are getting married, there's a death of the single person. And sometimes that can be hard. To let go of. And marriages don't work because people didn't really let go of who they were as single people. Or when there's a, a literal physical death in a community, in a family, people need to let in themselves die the person they were in relation to that other person in their physical presence. And that's why we have words like orphan and widow, that we develop new identities when someone dies. And at each of the little and large deaths and and rebirths along our soul's path, a ceremony can help us almost like the punctuation and grammar in a sentence. A ceremony can be a period, so a new sentence can start. Mm -hmm. That's a real energetic, I feel in my body that way. It's a a flow. We've been in one sentence, and then we have to end that one. Mm -hmm. And when we end it well, then we can begin the next one. So would you speak to birthing into death? How's dying like being born? Well, um, if you take a larger cosmological perspective on what life is, to say that life and death are not opposites. Birth and death are opposites. Life includes them both. You know, it's fall here in North America and uh, going into winter. Trees are dropping. Plants are dying. That's all the, the ending of things. But in the spring, those, that dead plant material will be the compost out of which new life comes. So death and birth cycle around and around. Life includes them both. And if we look at our own lives as that way, and my experience and my perspective is that we we make this journey into physical bodies more than once and there's a cycling around uh, where we come into physical form and we go out and as we're coming into physical form we're we're dying to our energetic uh, form and as we and we're being born into physical as we die to physical form we're being born back into energetic 
and the circle goes around and and it actually spirals if we if we do it enough times and we learn the lessons we we might move up out of that but that everything is a birth to one thing and a death to another that being the case do you believe that the quality of our approach to death can dictate the quality of our next time around I believe the quality of our entire life dictates the, the uh, or, or, or the approach of our life dictates uh, many of our experiences the next time around. But then the other thing is also true. Uh, how much of what happens when we're not in physical body is determining what happens when we come in? Are we choosing these lives because of lessons we need? Uh, so, yes, I, I think they're both connected and, and they're on a continuum. It's, it's, it's a very interesting perspective, isn't it? Because, you know, in our Western society, we assume that uh, you have one life and you die. A lot of times people look at it that way. If we think that we keep, keep doing this, that this is an opportunity to move up the rung, if you will, in experience, I think we might live our lives a little differently, don't you? Yes. And I think we might meet our deaths a little differently. Mm. Right now, if death is considered as the absolute end, non-existent, uh, chasm of emptiness. It's terrifying. No wonder we're all avoiding it any way we can as a society, that approach. But if we have a bigger perspective that says death is the next step, and there's a step after that, and there's a step after that, and it's just the next step, it makes it not such a terrifying prospect. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. You know, we time flies, and unfortunately, we are out of it, Sarah. Thank you so much for being with me on The Science of Magic. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been lovely, Wilda. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you bet. Our guest this hour has been Sarah Kerr, death doula, celebrant, and teacher, and mentor to emerging death doulas. Her website is soulpassages.ca. This has been The Science of Magic. Remember, you can always listen to thought-provoking episodes on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. Until next time, dear ones, may you be blessed with knowledge and comforted with love as you embrace all of life's passages. Mm-hmm.